This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. If razor blades were laying around the lab and people kept getting cut on them, we wouldn't say, well, we're opening a Band-Aid station. It's not the science that people don't like, but it's the environment in which they are doing science. Welcome to Hello PhD podcasts for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we reveal the results of a global survey of scientists' mental health. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 165. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Welcome back, Dan. Happy spooky season, Josh. It is nearly Halloween. And do you have something planned? Are you dressing up? Uh, my kids are plan are planning to go trick-or-treating in our neighborhood on, on Sunday evening. Uh, my son actually picked out a Halloween costume that is a biohazard suit with a gas mask. So... Uh, Yikes. <laughs> culturally appropriate, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> He's he's going as a as a CDC hot zone uh, scientist or something. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Um, but Dan, in the spirit of of Halloween, we have a beer that I think fully embraces the season. Dan, this is from Harpoon Brewing, and Harpoon is in Boston, Massachusetts. Do you know what else is big in Boston, Massachusetts, Dan? I do. My brother lives in Boston, and. Uh, they say America runs on Dunkin', but really Boston runs on Dunkin'. That's right. Dunkin' Donuts, now referred to as Dunkin', I believe. Uh, this is a, a collab, I guess you could say, of Harpoon Brewing and Dunkin' Donuts, the collaboration we never thought to ask for. But this is the Harpoon Dunkin' Pumpkin, and I'm assuming this is an official collaboration because this Dunkin' logo looks pretty official i can't imagine they'd be using it without permission yeah so. that would be against several laws if they took that all right well here goes nothing you know we, we always try to do a pumpkin ale or some kind of oktoberfest around this season we'll see how gross it is i mean i like pumpkin pie i like donuts you know, we, have, we have gone in search of the ultimate pumpkin beer each year i think we do this and um often are disappointed but i haven't we'll found i haven't found the perfect one yet i will say i like the duncan pumpkin donut have you had it dan i have not Oh, I should have got that for the show. Uh, well, let's taste. Okay, this is going to okay. be... I have opinions here. I will say, as, I'm, as I often prefer to do, I opened my bottle of Dunkin' Pumpkin and poured it into a glass, and the, the malty, yeasty smell kind of overwhelmed me at first. I was not sure if I was going to like this. Uh, I feel like sometimes pumpkin beers almost edge into that sour, but not in a good way. <laughs> taste right. you know what i mean yeah i do this i like this i think it tastes like bubble gum <laughs> keep in mind mine is warmer uh because i just went and found it and it was not in the fridge but i'm getting a distinct bubble gum and a little bit of an aspartame flavor off of it so it is it is not what i expected well let me tell you what i do like about it uh i will agree with you that it is sweeter than i expected which is probably the most negative aspect of it, I would say. But if there's something that I usually ding pumpkin beers for, especially those that... Uh, we even had a beer a few years ago that supposedly had 
several whole pumpkin pies thrown into the the mash, right? right? And you couldn't taste any pumpkin pie at all in the in the beer. I feel like I'm definitely getting those cinnamony, vanilla-y, spicy notes um, in this beer. Pumpkin spice, good for a latte, great for a beer. I think you could almost call this the Harpoon Duncan Chai beer and probably get away with that as well. (laughs) (laughs) You could call it a lot of things, Josh. And uh, as long as they're not too mean, no one will sue us for it. Well, one thing you pointed out to me that I did not realize is... There is an entire series of Harpoon Duncan collaboration beers besides the pumpkin that you actually saw in the grocery store. Is that right, Dan? That is true. So stay tuned. I will I will bring you something even more absurd than this Duncan pumpkin beer. All right. And if you find it out in your uh, neck of the woods and you give it a try, let us know uh, what your favorite uh, Harpoon Duncan Donuts beer is. With that, Josh, we want to thank our sponsors, Promega. In 2021, Promega is celebrating the 30th anniversary of bioluminescence as a tool for life science research. From illuminating protein interactions to giving us brighter tools for imaging, luminescent proteins have brought light to many different areas of research. When you're looking to study complex biological interactions, a bioluminescent reporter assay may be the tool you're looking for. Explore resources on bioluminescence and learn how it could be applied to your project by visiting promega.com slash hellophd. Also, Dan, we want to thank our friends at BioBox. Are you spending months learning how to use bioinformatic tools? Leverage the BioBox platform to process, analyze, and explore your genomic data without learning how to code. Accelerate your research and sign up for your 30-day free trial at BioBox.io. All right, Dan, let's get on with our topic of the week. All right, Dan, tell me a little bit about this interview that you did for today's show. Yeah, I spoke with Andrea Hayward, who is a senior associate of Global Community Engagement and Cactus Communications. And Cactus is a a foundation that released a mental health survey to scientists around the globe. So um, obviously, it's a global mental health survey. (laughs) It kind of makes sense. (laughs) But one thing I wanted to read before I get to the interview, they had a little uh, preface to the survey results that they put out in PDF form. And uh, I thought this was really meaningful. They said, Dear Reader, if there's anything that COVID-19 pandemic has taught us, it's that researchers are indispensable to our world. I think, Josh, you and I can agree with that statement, uh, particularly in light of COVID-19. But they go on, through their passion and dedication, they shoulder our hope for a better tomorrow. But their work environment is often harsh, unforgiving, hyper-competitive, and rife with failure and rejection. And mental health challenges are fairly common in academia. While we are sure it will be a fascinating and insightful read, we would like it to be just the starting point for an important global conversation on mental health in academia and a movement toward a more positive research culture. And I think that just encapsulates what this this report is about, Josh, and about what we're going to hear from Andrea. Yeah, this is probably one of the, the most important topics in in science training right now. And so I am eager to learn more about this survey and the results and what they tell us about science training today. Here's the interview. Today I am joined by Andrea Hayward. She's a senior associate of global community engagement for Cactus Communications. Welcome, Andrea. Hi. Hi. Thank you, Daniel, for having me today. It's great to be here. Uh, So you already mentioned that I work for Cactus Communications. So that is a global technology company 
that is devoted to accelerating scientific advancement. We started out as um, an organization that was more interested uh, or rather that was all we were doing at the time, but we wanted to help researchers uh, overcome the language barrier when it came to academic publication. And uh, so since then, we've branched out into uh, several several other endeavors. So we have um, training and development for researchers now. We have um, uh, an ecosystem of tools and products that we've recently released called the Researcher Ecosystem, which again is helped to support researchers in various parts of their academic journeys. And um, we also do something with research communication and um, as you already know, the topic of the arts, we have been doing things related to researcher well-being and mental health as well. So I have been with Cactus for the past five years or so, and I've done a whole lot of things since I got here. But what I'm doing now is something that um, is the most special to me, is the thing that I connect with most. So I'm part of uh, the community engagement team at Cactus. So it really allows me to connect with researchers on a more personal level. And for the past uh, two years or so, I have been uh, running the Cactus Mental Health Initiative, uh, which includes a whole lot of activities, including uh, the Cactus Mental Health Survey that we'll be talking about soon. Yeah, that's that's great by way of introduction for understanding what Cactus does. Um, and as you mentioned, what we want to talk about today is this mental health survey that you conducted among scientists around the globe. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, we had a total of 13,000 researchers from across the globe participate. And it was a pretty long survey. So I always make it a point to appreciate them when I do uh, talks like these because uh, they gave us their time and their experiences. So yeah, it was a pretty global survey. Yeah, and, and let's start with what made you want to start study mental health in scientists. You talk about there being some systemic issues in both academic and commercial research. So can you talk about what some of those things that you saw were that made you want to do the survey? Sure. So um, when we decided to do do this, it was more um, us trying to help researchers in, in aspects that weren't related to academic publication like we were doing. So we were, we have been talking to a lot of researchers for 20 years now. So we definitely knew that we were helping them in one aspect of their lives. But as we started speaking to them more, getting to know them better, we realized that that's not, uh, we're not even scratching the surface. There's a lot more that's going on. There's a lot more that we can do. And uh, there are several factors in an academic's life that aren't really in their control and, um, uh, part of the system, as you say. So there was actually a precursor to the survey. It was a project I ran called uh, Researchers and Their Stories. Uh, What I wanted to do through this was just get researchers um, to talk about themselves as people first and get to know the people behind the science. So um, we ended up collecting about 450 stories, I think close to 500 stories. Um, Unique, yeah. (laughs) Unique stories. And... Uh, They were great. We got to know. uh, So there were topics like a day in the life of a PhD student or what I did after I wrote my thesis or um, what it felt like in my first week of graduate school. So it was quite varied and it was great. But uh, with the positive stories came 
a lot of topics that were problematic that were concerning so we there, there were um, topics like depression imposter feelings so that was um that came as a, a shock to us it shouldn't have because it was already there's so much about it but um it made us wonder how many more researchers were were out there that were probably struggling and who probably didn't have uh, necessarily a platform on which they could share what they were going through and so um that that was the feedback we got from the researchers and their stories um project that thank you for asking me no one's ever asked me before and so um we figured that um if you could create a sort of safer space where they don't necessarily have to put in their names and they can tell us and uh we can compile some data and get some actual data together that would be great yeah and and you note in in the study that it's really common to experience stress and burnout mental and physical illness i think you you mentioned that the risk is higher in phd students that half experience psychological distress and a third are at risk for a psychiatric disorder and that really you know again it's one of these shocking but not surprising statistics right so i think um some of these uh, very specific um statistics related to mental illness came from prior studies and not from this particular one Yeah, I I was I think it was in your introduction or in your in in one of the um executive overviews. It was just laying out the importance of of studying this further. Yeah, absolutely. Um but now that you mention it, um I feel like uh, so one thing to note here is that PhD students made up uh, the most they were the largest group from our global sample. I think they accounted for about uh, 30% of everyone who took the survey. And as as we talk we'll see that they have stood out as a group that's gotten the shorter end of the stick for, for lack of a better phrase and we were talking about stress so in to, to start off with one of the findings that really bothered me we we saw that one third of um, the entire sample uh, said that they felt overwhelmed by their work situation fairly or very often and when you're reading it it sounds okay it's not that bad it's 38% it's 37% but um if you think of just that one person who is experiencing uh this kind of feeling who's who's feeling so overwhelmed by their work situation that they cannot work then it really makes you wonder and it's so many people and um, we found that phd students uh were most likely than any other group to to express this sentiment yeah it's so so helpful too i think to give people context on on the type of survey that it is the question was in the last month how often have you felt overwhelmed by your situation at work and then people could answer never almost never sometimes fairly often or very often and as you said 38% said that they had felt overwhelmed fairly or very often in the previous month so this is not talking about what the effect of that type of stress that feeling of overwhelmed nature is over the course of 4 or 5 years or 10 years right. or a decade you know you know as a career. Yeah. Um and and what I what I really enjoyed about this study is we talked about how you ask questions in 169 countries. So I think 11% yeah. of the respondents were in North America, 20% Europe, 50% Asia. Um yeah. 39% faculty and I I can't remember what the number of uh PhD students was, but you got this you were able to differentiate between these places and these people yes. in their roles. Um so respondents yeah. working in Asia were less likely 
than those from other regions to state that they felt overwhelmed frequently, either fairly or very often. And and so these differences start to make you ask deeper questions like, well, is scientific research better in Asia or are people in Asia less likely to say that they feel overwhelmed? And, and do you have a, a sense yeah. of some of those things? That's a... Uh... That's actually a great question. It's something that, so the survey's been out for a while. The results have been out and I still find myself um, questioning some of this. Uh, so we, we didn't really do follow-up questions to some of these. And um, there, there was a, a, a long, long answer kind of question towards the end. But uh, personally, um, I feel like uh, given that I am from, from Asia, I feel like uh, the taboo around just admitting that you are stressed or you're overwhelmed or you can't handle the work is a lot here. I'm sure it's um, pretty much uh, the same everywhere else. But I feel like just culturally, um, we feel like that there's that fear of being perceived negatively if you even admit to not being able to manage and... Um, uh, you have no option but to cope. So it, it might just be the case that um, they were feeling stressed or they were feeling overwhelmed and they just didn't want to admit it to the extent. Uh, and the taboo might be so um, deep that even in an anonymous survey, they couldn't get themselves to maybe admit it. So we don't necessarily think everybody who's feeling stressed at work should move to Asia where it's calm and everybody's <laughs> <laughs> underworked and takes a lot of leisure time. That's not... It's not the finding. No, I don't. I, I don't think that's how we should uh, read the results. Um, I feel like um, it's probably just more acceptance, maybe in the UK, in Europe, in the US, for just um, for just people admitting that they're stressed or they can't manage on any given day. Yeah, I mean, case in point, if you if you want to complain about graduate school, you can get a podcast and and <laughs> complain about graduate school all you want for the next 10 years. So I am proof that uh, in the United States, we are willing to say that that was hard. Um, you know, you, you one of the questions you asked was about the working hours. And yes. famously in graduate school, nights and weekends and holidays, even though you may not need to be there, you feel like you should be there, and so you go. Can you talk about what, what you found in your survey about working hours for researchers? Sure. Uh, so we found, again, that um, I think similar to the people who said they were feeling overwhelmed, we found about uh, 21% uh, who reported working more than 50 hours a week, and then there was 13% who reported working more than 60 hours per week. So again, I think... Um, Whenever I talk about the survey, I feel the need to re reiterate that it's uh, it might seem small. It's 13%, but it's 13% of 13,000 researchers across the globe. So um, I don't see uh, why anyone should have to be working these these many hours. And it, it, even I feel like questioning if they are, then uh, is, is it like a long day or are, are they pulling I don't know, all-nighters? All Are they working weekends? So I feel like these are some of the questions that they should raise. Yeah, and again, with the being able to divide out the types of, of jobs, uh, you noted that 32% work upwards of 50 hours a week in academic settings, but in yeah. government, industry, and the not-for-profit sectors, it's only 25%. And so somebody looking for maybe a little more work-life balance may want to think again about an academic career as opposed to one in industry or a, non a non-profit. Yeah, that's, 
That's probably right. I feel like um, this particular uh, variation is probably because a government job or uh, an industry job might have that that uh, might have some aspect of uh, human resource management, and uh, because of that, there might be uh, people who are actually looking out for your well-being, or you have set hours and uh, set. Uh, you have clearly defined um, work goals, you could say, or um, your role has some um, specific objectives and specific responsibilities. Whereas if you're in academia, then there's just a whole lot of things you have to do. And uh, sometimes the responsibilities clash. Sometimes you have so many things to do that you might feel like you're doing three roles. So I feel like that whole uh, human resource uh, factors actually missing in academia. There's no one really thinking about um, their well-being in that sense. Yeah, there's no programmatic department to make sure that yeah. people are following uh, good work practices in that way. Uh, and, and I think yeah. what what we're going to try to do is in a follow-up episode, we're going to talk about some of the recommendations that came from the study that you did. I think it's going to be really valuable to people, not just to say, hey, there's a problem here, but there are some yeah. concrete steps we can take. And so you and I are going to follow up on that. Can, can you talk a little bit about the questions and, and the responses you got on discrimination and harassment? Um, I noticed sure. that you, know, you said 64% of the respondents said they felt welcome and included in their organization, but 37% mm -hmm. had experienced or were experiencing discrimination, harassment, or bullying. Um, and, and that yeah. tended to be in mixed race researchers, researchers identifying as homosexual, um, female yeah. researchers. So can you talk about what is what is happening where we have this large group of people who say, hey, this is working for me. I feel welcome. But a group of people that are being actively discriminated against or, or perceive that in their daily work. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So and uh, I'm, I'm drawing from... Uh, a new project that I'm currently working on where we're going to do more uh, to talk about bullying and harassment in academia. But I feel like when it comes to uh, discrimination, bullying and harassment, there's a lot of things that you would consider as um, blatant bullying or blatant harassment, like physical abuse or verbal abuse. But there's also a lot of uh, tiny things that don't necessarily get pegged as bullying, but it is. And I feel like... Um, I feel like a lot of people might be going through this and they might not even necessarily know. Uh, so if I can give you an example. So if, say, if it's a person, uh, if, if, it's an, if it's a person from a different country and they're working in a different country um, than they're originally from, uh, it could be a social isolation kind of situation where they are deliberately excluded from group meetings or uh, social gatherings. And um, they might not necessarily look at it as bullying. They might think, oh, maybe I'm different. So maybe I'm not cut out for the group or I'm not cut out for the team. But that's not the case. So I feel like there's a lot of these. Um, I, I don't know what word to use for them, but uh, just behaviors and actions and communication styles, even uh, passive aggressive communication, for example, that could be uh, bullying and harassment. But a lot of people might not necessarily uh, look at it that way. Um, I feel like uh, a lot of people who said that they felt welcome and included, um, even though we had about 40% of the people say that they felt uh, bullied and harassed, I feel like um, there is this normalization of certain behaviors in academia 
uh, wherein uh, people feel like just because I went through this uh, and I had to struggle through it, you have to as well. And that's just how it is. And um, It's a culture of hazing it, in, yeah, in some yeah. places. And I, I've seen researchers, um, faculty members who believe in that system. And I've seen some that don't. And so it really depends yeah. on what lab you end up in and what department you end up yeah. in, whether you'll experience that. But I've, I've certainly seen it. Absolutely. So maybe uh, maybe the people who didn't uh, say that they were experiencing it, maybe they're coming from a place of, oh, it could be worse. I'm, I, I'm, right. So it's, it, it's all in fun. They're just maybe, they're joking. They don't mean it. Uh, it could be way worse. So I feel like uh, maybe... Uh, that's why we have um, this kind of variation here in both findings. Yeah, and and the next um, set of questions that you asked kind of alarmed me a little bit because mm-hmm. you asked whether people would get support, whether they would ask for help if they needed it. And and right. I think of this particularly in light of these discrimination questions that we were just talking about. Yeah. And 49%, almost half, said they would not discuss work-based feelings of severe stress or anxiety with the relevant people or authorities in their workplace. Can you... Half of people won't go ask for help. Can you talk about why that is and what are some of the barriers? Sure. Um, uh, Just looking at some of the later uh, questions in the survey, wherein we um, we asked them, if not, then why? I feel it would be interesting to draw on some of those reasons here. Uh, So I feel like most people felt that uh, they wouldn't be understood or that they would be perceived negatively. So we had uh, had a couple of people uh, say, so some of the reasons rather for why people wouldn't seek help was that um, they would be perceived as um, weak or people would not understand them. Or even if people would, then they wouldn't necessarily be able to provide the kind of support they need. And I think one of the most problematic ones here is most of them thought that feeling stressed, overwhelmed and anxious is just a regular part of academic life. It's just a routine rite of passage. And I think that one is uh, the one that worried me the most as well. So maybe there's this feeling that they have to go through it. And if you're not going through it, then maybe you're not doing, you're not doing it right. Yeah. We begin to normalize the behavior. We, we normalize the discrimination. Yeah. We normalize the, the feeling of being overwhelmed. And then why should yeah. you try to change it? Because that's just how it is. And that is a dangerous road to be on. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I feel like a lot of people were also worried that uh, they wouldn't be taken seriously. And I think that's something that uh, decision makers in academia really should take as, I don't know, like a warning bell. Because um, if someone's struggling and they they can't talk to you about it because they feel that you won't take something as serious as depression seriously, then uh, we really have cause um, to really reevaluate everything, I feel. That's right. Um, and, and it's not, you know, what's interesting about the survey is it's not all bad news. One of the questions yeah. you asked talked about, you know, do you feel inspired or do you go to work yes. and, and, you know, want to be there? And overwhelmingly, people are getting fulfillment out of this idea of doing scientific research. So talk about that a minute, about working right. in this inspiring environment. Yeah, so uh, that is why we called, um, that's why we wanted to call it um, joy and stress triggers because we wanted to know um, what is causing them stress, of course, but 
what is also working for researchers in research culture or about their work that's bringing people keep joy. going to do it there must be something desirable yeah. <laughs> about it right 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 so uh like you said nearly half of the survey respondents uh, uh they said that the academic environment they worked in inspired them to work to their goals uh but in the open comments we found that a lot of this um it it reflected more the support of their peers and colleagues rather than support that they were necessarily receiving from the institution or the university at large so um maybe these results are just reflecting that one great colleague and uh, just just the work i feel like a lot of them also said that they agreed that their work kept them excited about what they were doing and uh, they liked the intellectual challenges that it presented so i feel like the work necessarily that people are doing because a lot of people choose their own research areas so i don't think the work necessarily is the problem here i feel like the environment in which the work is being done or rather certain processes and um systems that they have to go through in order to do the work i think that's the thing that's causing the problem yeah and it's interesting again the the split between uh you had more senior respondents the faculty member level or postdocs were more likely to be inspired by the environment compared to phd students uh or those who worked in research for less than 10 years and why do you think yeah. that difference exists did did we lose those people that didn't find it inspiring and so only the ones who were inspired moved on or do you think it's really a difference in the nature of graduate training um i don't think there's a way to say if we lost uh, the people who didn't find it uh, inspiring uh maybe for the folks who were in more senior positions uh maybe they've already been through it and so they're comparing where they are now or how less difficult i'm not going to use the word easy because it's not easy at any stage right. but how relatively less difficult it is for them right now or uh, maybe they find it inspiring because they now have job security which they didn't have before and uh, maybe they're not constantly worrying about what comes next whereas for a phd student or someone in graduate school that's got to be a question that bothers them i think almost every day so maybe in terms the variation in terms of uh, role or designation i think that probably stems from here so let's move to the topic of job prospects and about what people see on the horizon where they're looking as they move through their training uh cuz you asked several questions right. about what are your options what are your what is your outlook for your career right so um we found here that um although a lot of people said uh i think about 60% almost two thirds of people probably said that they have plenty of opportunities to learn and grow uh it was kind of ironic that a similar proportion of people also said that they didn't know where they could probably find these opportunities so they didn't know how what kind of opportunities were available to them and i feel that just speaks to a lack of or or rather a gap in training wherein you're not you're not preparing uh graduate students or maybe uh people who are who just started out in their careers you're not telling them the kind of options that they have and there's no conversation around this even on twitter i see i see a lot of graduate students posting questions about is, is an industry job really an option for me and there's um there's a couple of people who uh, respond but that shouldn't be the case right they shouldn't have to go onto a social media website to get this kind of information this 
these kind of details i feel should actually be provided to them uh, without them even asking for it yeah speaking of normalizing behaviors and activities it should be normal for researchers to work in industry after they graduate i think that makes sense so they also found about two thirds of our global samples said that they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't mind looking outside of academia and so that's another thing i think if we want to retain this kind of high quality talent then that's something that just just academia in general should be worried about if people are if so many people are um, are, are okay not to say that an industry role would be bad or it's bad for someone to move but um, if you want to keep your people i feel like you should be doing a bit better job at making their stay pleasant that is such an interesting point because on on our podcast we have talked for a long time about again normalizing this movement between academia and industry or a nonprofit sector or a government job and making people not feel bad about that transition right. but but you're turning right. that around and saying hey academia do you want to lose your best people do you want people graduating but not coming back to the institution to help you know create the next generation of scientists it is it's a kind of a brain drain type of situation if academia becomes too toxic i feel like um i'm coming uh, i'm i'm not coming from a you need to stay to give back i'm coming from a position where i feel like it shouldn't be that bad in academia that people are forced to choose forced to choose industry just for things like job security or work life balance they should be presented to them as two equally cool things that they might choose choose to do and i feel like people shouldn't have to move to industry not that it's bad but they shouldn't be forced to make that choice just for things like a reasonable salary or like i said work life balance or better policies uh, i feel like i'm coming from that place yeah that's that's great and it's a good distinction about 60% uh they agreed that they felt unsure about their job prospects and the chances of having a stable career but i feel like um phd students and postdoctoral researchers they were most likely to agree with this about feeling feeling unsure about their job prospects so 70% of phd students they agreed with this statement and 73% of postdoctoral researchers agreed with this statement one really common experience for scientists and and people at all levels uh, we are learning i think is this notion of imposter syndrome and you had a question uh, that resulted in 35% of the respondents saying that they doubt their work achievement and felt like they do not belong in academia. And you said 28% were unhappy about academia as a career choice. And this was, again, it was split between senior and early career researchers. So is it is it just that common that we all feel like we don't belong in this system? And is it possible for everybody to not belong in academia? I feel like, Uh, we all have imposter feelings to some extent and uh, i don't think it's I, i don't think it's a thing of people not belonging at all i feel like it's more about people not getting uh, consistent recognition and validation that they deserve or uh, if you if you're in graduate school then you think you've made it after you've defended your dissertation you've done so many things along the way you've picked up so many new skills there's no one there's no one telling you oh my god you did a great job good job this was amazing there's so many people who aren't doing this and you're actually breaking ground and you're discovering new things on a daily basis i feel like that i feel like the end goal 
is magnified to the extent that the little steps and the little things along the way aren't necessarily given importance and so i think it's it's only natural for people to feel like they aren't doing it right or they don't belong or um, someone else is doing it better than them i feel imposter feelings probably stem from this competitive environment that uh, most academic settings have and i feel like it also stems from there not being enough conversation about failure and failure experiences like social media everyone's just putting their best foot forward they're telling you about that one paper that got published they're not telling you about the seven journals that rejected the same paper it's not even about putting your failures on blast i feel like speaking about failures really humanizes the experience and it reminds you that there's a person behind the paper that you're evaluating or the experience that you're assessing and so i feel like we need more of this if we want to not completely do away with imposter feelings but at least make people feel like they belong yeah that's great and and a constant reminder i, I feel like we we just have to keep saying you are not the only person who feels that way and no matter how confident the people around you look they are having some of the same emotions, the same experiences. And so every chance I get, I try to remind people, I felt that way. You know, my co-host Josh felt that way. Everybody feels that way. And and it can it could be at any time in your career, not just as a PhD student. We've talked to faculty members who say, I've been here five years and I still don't feel like I fit. You know, I've got tenure and I still don't feel like I belong. So uh, this is just a, a part of life and talking about it is the best way forward. Andrea, we have covered a lot of ground, but really only scratched the surface on both the mental health survey and the recommendations. So how can people find these documents and learn more about the work of Cactus? We have both survey reports. They're very extensive. One of them, I think, is 60 pages. We have them both available on a website. It is cactusglobal.com slash mental health survey and i think we can maybe put it in the description uh daniel is that sure is yeah that we'll work? put a link in the show notes that'd yeah. be great okay so you can uh you can access both those there they're uh, freely downloadable and you can follow us uh on twitter at cactus mhs uh that's our twitter handle uh, we're constantly talking about this uh we wanted the survey to not be just a one-time thing and I'm happy to say that there's several more initiatives and activities that have come out from this. So we have an academic mental health webinar series. We're currently working on something to do with bullying and harassment and yeah, lots more. So I'm hoping that we can use this uh, database that we've generated and actually implement some of these suggestions and changes that have come through in a bigger way. And it'd be so interesting to ask these questions over time to see how yeah. how they shift. I mean, you, you conducted the survey during a global pandemic. Did that yes. make things worse or better? Uh, did people have more work-life balance because they were home? It's, it's so <laughs> fascinating. And, and I hope that we can talk yeah. to you again as you continue to work on this subject. Absolutely. I'd love that. Wow, Dan, thanks for, thanks for doing that interview. That was extremely insightful. Yeah, I, I got a lot out of it just talking through some of the uh, topics. You know, they're not necessarily... Uh, things that we haven't discussed before, although I think it's nice to put data onto it and really to get that global perspective. You know, you and I went through a program in a, a single university in uh, the United States, but this is not confined to our experience. Obviously, this is something that's happening around the world. Absolutely. And, you know, so much of this, Dan, 
echoes or harkens back to or just affirms even why we do this show and why we started doing this show six years ago was these feelings that we had coming through training, these these challenges um, that, that we faced, not necessarily even with always the science itself, but everything else that went along with being in academia, going through graduate school. But it was so easy to feel isolated and alone that you were broken in some way because you were feeling this way. And I think we've come a long way since the time that in our understanding of these um, challenges that face trainees and these systems that are in place that perpetuate these challenges since the time we were in graduate school, but even since the time we started podcasting five or six years ago and doing these comprehensive surveys like Cactus is doing that Andrea talked about, um, this is really the data that is needed to, I would think, rally institutions, those in charge, to see the problem, acknowledge the problem, and actually put things in place to remedy the problem. And do you see that change coming from above or from the grassroots? Like I can imagine in the United States, the NIH saying, look, we see this as an issue. Therefore, if you want funding, you have to follow these 15 guidelines. Or do you see it as students saying, look, this isn't okay. We need to make a change in our department. I think it has to be both. I think it can be both. I think it has to come. At some point, there has to be acknowledgement from the decision-making bodies, which certainly includes funders, like you mentioned, but I think also includes leadership at academic institutions to recognize that that these issues are in play. And, and to some degree, I think what's challenging is we can acknowledge, and I think many academic leaders have acknowledged that there is a mental health crisis among science trainees. I think the challenge, though, is where do you go beyond that? So we acknowledge that these uh, these challenges are at play with our trainees, but what do we do about it? What Or what's behind it? What's causing it, right? Because if you don't have a clear vision of what's causing it, then what can happen, and I think this might be where we are right now at a lot of institutions, putting in place uh, mechanisms to treat the symptoms, which is not necessarily a bad thing. So I know at my own uh, previous institution um, and other institutions like it, this increased focus on student mental health has led to things like um, increased student wellness and mental health services for graduate students specifically, increased uh, mental health and wellness activities. Like those are great, but what they really do is they help graduate students deal with and manage mental health challenges they're having during their training without necessarily targeting or understanding the underlying mechanisms leading to those challenges. And I think that's really the future. And surveys like this, I think, are really important to help to tease that out a little bit. Yeah. And I will say we're going to talk to Andrea uh, in the next episode about some of the solutions that uh, the that came out of the survey where they asked open-ended questions. What would you do about this to the people who responded? But Josh, I think you're so right. If If mental health were a physical uh, manifestation. If razor blades were laying around the lab and people kept getting cut on them, we wouldn't say, well, we're opening a Band-Aid station, right? We would <laughs> we put a sharps container in <laughs> to solve the problem so that we don't need a Band-Aid station. And I think I think what you're getting at is we're, we're dealing with the effects of some of these problems 
but we're not dealing with the sources of it. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. Yeah, I do want to say you sent me the the audio of this interview, and I was listening in my car as I was as I was driving um, a couple days ago. And when she got to this one part, I started like pumping my fist like in the air. I'm, I'm sure I was like at the stoplight, head banging. Like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, one of the things that that Andrew said really was channeling my main mantra or hypothesis or philosophy or whatever you want to call it, my belief system of science training and the issues with science training uh, when we were in, in graduate school and today. And one of the thing, and what she said, I'm paraphrasing here, is that it's not the science that people don't like, but it's the environment in which they are doing science. And I think the data speaks very clearly from this survey, this worldwide survey that Cactus did. And so I felt very affirmed because we said it so many times, Dan, um, that, you know, we think science is so important. And even if we think about our own experiences, I know speaking for myself, and I think you had a similar experience, I can remember when I first was exposed to doing science in the lab. For me, I was a junior in undergrad. And I thought, well, this is amazing. Like, this is so cool. And at that point, my experience with science was so pure. It was just about the doing science part. I wasn't aware of or <laughs> mixed up in all the other academic baggage. It was just me and the experiments and, uh, and, and that part of doing science. And great people. You made great friends. You got you worked hard. You stayed late, but it was exciting and exhilarating. Your your mentor was a mentor, uh, encouraging you, training you. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a great experience. I remember you talking about it. And I thought, like, science is great. This is amazing. This is what I want to do for my whole life. I feel like I have clarity finally for what I want to do. But then over time, that enthusiasm waned as I started that passion for science started also coming up against some of the structures of graduate school, the open-endedness of, of deadlines and timelines, the lack of um, sort of recognition or boundaries with regard to work-life balance, the uncertainty of, of career transitions, all these other pieces really started to overshadow um, or overwhelm even that initial just pure love of science and doing experiments and talking to people around me about science. And I don't think my story is unique there. I, I would say many trainees, <laughs> at, you know, at some point, many, many trainees probably are less enthusiastic about science by the end of their training than they were at the beginning. And I think that bore out in, in the data from the survey as well. Yeah, the roadblock that each person hits might be a little bit different. It could be a, an unresponsive PI or maniac PI. It could be difficult to get funding. It could be a, a toxic work relationship. It could be all sorts of different things. But I think you're right. The The joy of doing science can uh, can be dulled or changed by some of these experiences. I, and I think, I think it comes out in the survey, Josh, exactly what you said, that a lot of people said, I'm very fulfilled by this work. I'm motivated. I'm inspired. So there is a, there is a, when they stop and think about the actual work that they're doing, they feel great about it and they want to do it. But then they feel overworked and they feel like they're being discriminated against or harassed. And those are all external to what you're talking about, which is doing science can be joyful. Absolutely. Um, Dan, one thing I wanted to, to mention that came up in the interview was was a mention that graduate students don't often have 
the same sort of of protections that other employees at the institution have. Time and time again, graduate students seem to have it worse in, in terms of these mental health questions. Yeah, that can be true. And I think, and this is certainly true of postdocs. Actually, sometimes postdocs have it the worst of anyone because they're not classified as a student or a permanent employee of the institution. But um, but graduate students do do exist in this strange middle space um, at the university, at least, where they are classified as students, but fundamentally their day-to-day and the way they are experiencing the university and contributing at the university is very different than like an undergraduate student. Um, They're not really taking classes. They really are functioning more like an employee. They have uh, supervisory relationships. They're coming in. They're doing work all the time. But because they don't have these same employee protections um, or employee considerations, that sets up a system where... Um, where labor abuses or less than ideal work environments um, can can occur. Um, I do want to say though, um, I think it's really important for for students to be aware. And I was not necessarily aware of this as a student, but most universities, most institutions these days, do have policies in place that protect. Um, everyone at the institution, including students, and sometimes especially students. I would advise and recommend to all students that you just spend a little bit of time uh, poking around your institution's website. Um, You could probably even do a Google search for University of so-and-so policy on harassment um, or discrimination or whatever, um, because I imagine that your university, most universities, um, at least in the United States and probably elsewhere too, have written public policies on how people at the institution, no matter what their level, um, should be treated. And that there probably also are procedures in place when those policies are not met. And it can be really handy to know that those exist because they can give you a little bit of framework towards more towards the front of your mind when you see an infringement of those policies occur. Um, one, you can identify it as such. And two, you might know the appropriate, you would have a better idea of the appropriate channels to address it. I like that. And, and I think that might help to address one of my primary concerns in in this survey, which is, that seeking support question where 49% of respondents said they would not discuss work-related feelings of severe stress or anxiety with relevant people in their workplace. And the barriers were a sense that nobody could help them, that it might reflect poorly on them, um, fear of not being taken seriously. I think there's this, this power differential where I'm a graduate student. I am suffering in, you know, mentally in, in my work. I, I am working too many hours or, I don't feel supported or, um, you know, I, I'm sacrificing parts of my mental health to do this job. But then who do I talk to? I'm not going to go to my PI because I don't want to look bad or maybe they won't help me. I can't really go to the, you know, the director of graduate studies because what are they going to do? Talk to my PI and then it becomes a problem in a different way. And so uh, I was wondering if you have seen cases where students were able to receive accommodations or help or to get a a change in their workload or whatever was stressing them by going and talking to somebody. Have you ever seen that happen? It can happen. Yes, it can happen on a case by case basis, but I think this is, and who do they have to talk to? Well, I think this is a great example, Dan, of one of these, one of these structural barriers or at least structural challenges to students getting the accommodations or getting the support that they need because often 
you know, the person they would need to go to, or at least at some point would need to be made aware for this to happen, is the advisor, is the thesis advisor. And personally speaking, I think this is one of the big challenges to um, some of these structural environmental problems is, and we've talked about this on the show before, so much rests on that relationship between the student and the advisor for the student to uh, proceed through the program, for them to eventually transition successfully out of the program, even sometimes on their immediate job prospects afterwards with like a letter of recommendation. And so as a graduate student, those incentive structures, you so need that relationship with the advisor to be positive just so you can move on with your life and your career that with that power differential and the importance of that relationship, that professional relationship, sometimes like it has to get really bad for you to want to rock the boat at all for fear of disrupting that relationship. And and that's the thing that no policy can change, Josh. If let's say I, I, I have a poor work environment and my PI expects everybody to be working 80 hours a week or whatever it is. And I go in and I say, look, I can't do this. It is impacting my mental health and my physical health to be in the lab this much. We might have a policy. We may establish a policy in the department that you don't work 80 hours a week. But I can't change the letter of recommendation that my PI writes that says I was never there and I was lazy or whatever. You know, I'm imagining a worst case scenario. But there's no policy that can help me transition in my career based on that relationship with the PI. I I just can't imagine how that gets solved. Well, I think what can happen, and actually, Dan, I would say creating policies around what is appropriate treatment and appropriate conditions for graduate students to work under is an important and necessary first step. Because I think in many cases, we haven't identified to that degree, to that specific level, well, what is inappropriate? What is out of bounds um, for an advisor to expect of a graduate student? I can say that some institutions that I know of have started drafting these policies for what is appropriate expectations and treatment of graduate students. And I think that is a necessary first step. Um, And that's something I would encourage all institutions that train graduate students to do is and and you know you involve this is not one person putting this together but but I've seen this happen Dan when you bring um, faculty together you bring students together you bring administrators together they can collectively come up with reasonable agreed upon expectations where the work can get done but graduate students can be treated fairly and appropriately because until you have those policies written down then the next step and this is where I don't think we are yet in academia the next step is there have to be some teeth, right? So what if you fail to follow those policies? Then what happens? And I think that is where academia has really fallen short, is there are very few examples that I know of where an advisor has mistreated a trainee, and then there have actually been consequences for that. Yep. And we're going to get into that more in the next episode, because that is something that I have experienced and seen in in my life. And I would love to explore that more. If you can find some of those policies for us next week, Josh, I think it'd be fun to unpack some of those, uh, because the solutions to this are as important as identifying the problem. Absolutely. Well, Dan, thank you for, for reaching out. I'm looking forward to part two of this episode. But again, I think it's so important that this work is being done, because until we really identify the problem, 
can we then put in put in place um, specific solutions? Um, the one thing, Dan, this is a random aside, but this was a global survey of many scientists in many countries, correct? True. I would love to know uh, how our grad student friends in Australia are doing, because as we have documented on the show before, Australia has a very unique um, time to degree that is short. And that is one of my other hypotheses that the open-ended nature of PhD training contributes to mental health challenges. So I'd love to know how our friends in the land down under are faring in this survey. Maybe we can we can reach out to Andrea and find out. They did have two uh, percent of the respondents came from Australasia, Oceania. You know, there were two people in Antarctica that responded to the survey, so that was that was something too. I guess we can't disaggregate their responses without breaking anonymity, <laughs> given the number of grad uh, students. two people in Antarctica. <laughs> I think you're correct. Uh, maybe next time, Josh. Yeah, Dan. Well, this was fantastic. Thanks again, and uh, certainly encourage everyone to to tune in and hear the next part of this of this interview i also want to say if you know of your institution if you know or have heard that your institution has drafted or created some policies specific for um, the proper treatment or expectations of graduate students specifically um, let us know we would love love to hear about what's happening in your in your um, your specific uh, environment that'd be great to share in the next episode as well So if you have question or topic ideas, we would love to hear them. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We'd appreciate the Dunkin' Donuts beer money. Thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons. Dan, I'm going to try an experiment where I'm going to just purchase a generic amber beer and a pumpkin donut, and I'm going to just, like, mash it up in there, and then we're going to drink it and see which one we like better. You're going to drink it, Josh. (laughs) I'm not going to drink it. You enjoy that, and we'll see you next time. All right, Dan. See you next time.